We think about time as one drop in an ocean where each drop determines the composition of the entire ocean. So that means that individual decisions and actions have immense consequences. Hello, I'm Olivia Cummings, and on this podcast, I'd like to introduce you to the people who inspire me in my life and work as a jeweler, designer, and founder of Cleopatra's Bling. There are certain people who you would love to be seated next to at a dinner party, just to pick their brain. Erin O'Halloran is just such a person, a historian specialising in the Middle East, India and Europe, who is not only quick with an anecdote, but who also draws incredible connections between historical events. This phenomenally exciting, engaging drama of what it is to be human and living in society, you know, that that's kind of how I like to talk about it and how I like to teach it. Talking to Erin gave me deeper insights into our past and present. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri country, and I pay my respects to all First Nations listeners. Hi, Erin. Hi, Olivia. Thanks for being on our podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been really looking forward to speaking to you. Me too, especially since I saw what your speciality is. I got really excited because obviously, you know, the brand is deeply rooted in history. Yeah, that's how I know about you. Well, I'd like to hear more about that. How did you find out about Cleopatra's Bling? So I was working with uh, with a fashion designer in Cairo, and um, she was sending me your website as an example of what she was hoping in terms of storytelling for herself oh, wow. and her brand. And I immediately sent the website to my partner. He's an archaeologist of the Roman world, and we're both obsessed with ancient objects and myth and culture across Mm -hmm. the Mediterranean and Indian Ocean worlds. And so actually, I have my engagement ring is a Cleopatra's bling ring. Yeah. <laughs> Congrats. When did you get yeah, it? Which one you. is it? Yeah, it's your it's your wabi-sabi ring. So oh, amazing. It, and since I'm a Japanese Buddhist, that was the culture that I was raised in. And so it was really phenomenal that you had something that bridged all of those different pieces of who we are, you know, between the Middle East and um, yeah, and Buddhism and everything else. So that was several years ago, but still love Lovely. the ring. Congrats. Do you have a plan for a wedding or is that? Oh, yeah. This was ages ago. We got married in 2019. Oh, okay. Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to talk about your background as an academic historian. Mm -hmm. What drew you to this field? I guess that what initially drew me to history uh, was a love of storytelling, of um, myth, legend, the ancient past, and in particular, I was really enamored with classical theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent many years pr- like in the performing arts. I directed, I acted, and I was thinking that I was going to go into conservatory training. And I had a drama coach who said that she thought that it wouldn't be intellectually engaging enough for me. She said, why don't you go do a degree in something else, something related like history, And then you could always come back to theater once you had done that. So I sort of took her advice and went to study international relations and international history, initially thinking, okay, well, this is a way into understanding more about 
um, the fields that I enjoy creating art in. And one thing kind of led to another. I had an amazing professor of Middle Eastern history, and that inspired me to go off to Beirut. I spent um, five years in Lebanon. I did my master's degree in Middle Eastern politics and Middle Eastern history. Wow. Um, and then eventually ended up back uh, doing a PhD in, in history as well. So it was very much sort of one piece of the puzzle leading to the next. And now at the postdoc stage, I'm finally starting to like look back on my earlier interest in myth, legend, storytelling, drama, and how like the study of history then gives me a way back into like how to create, you know, maybe more interesting and more accessible work that other people who aren't historians might be interested in, you know, listening to or watching or reading. Amazing. So like accessible history in a way. Well, yeah, like like plays, exhibitions, yep. um, books that are for a more general audience, stuff like that. So I think it's it's been like a really long journey to get to that point. Mm. But I've always been sort of between these two interests. One, you know, storytelling and a mythical past and like what what do those stories and what do those myths and legends tell us about being human? Like what is the truth in them? Mm. And then also like the hard realities of yeah. our actual contemporary world, what's on the news, et cetera. And what history is almost like a way of bridging those two things or creating an intersection between them. Definitely. Also, I think it can be too lofty history studies and people get a little bit intimidated by it. So it's good when it's accessible and people can get a grasp. I hear that all the time. When I tell mm. people I'm a historian, one of the most common responses is, oh God, I hated history in school. Yeah. Or like, you know, I never connected with that subject. And that's, you know, always such a tragedy for me, like when I hear mm. it, because history is storytelling about people. Like there's nothing yeah. more exciting or interesting than the story of who we are and how we came to be here and the story of how other cultures developed or how, you know, like how did we arrive at our at our present reality? So the fact that it's usually taught in school curriculums is like a series of dates and names that people have to memorize as opposed to this phenomenally exciting, engaging drama of what it is to be human and living in society, you know, that that's kind of how I like to talk about it and how I like to teach it. That's amazing. So what are the most surprising or some of the most surprising connections you've discovered through your research between the Middle East, India and Europe? Yeah, so my work tends to focus on the first half of the 20th century, the end of European empire in the Middle East and South Asia, and the emergence or the ascent of nationalism in those regions. And one of the things that when I initially started doing my doctoral research on connections between Egypt and India, one of the things that really stood out was how up until about 1945, these places were understood as connected. They were connected mm. both within the context of the British Empire, because, you know, the Suez Canal uh, in Egypt was a vital artery connecting Britain to its empire in India and further afield, you know, to Australia, for example, and Singapore. Yeah. All of that trade and transit went through Egypt. Mm. So Egypt was in many ways like a massive global metropolis, a, a 
beating heart center of empire. But it was also the gateway to Asia. It was also a center of Arab Islamic culture. It had, you know, the the most kind of prestigious Muslim universities were stationed there. Um, There was also a massive craze in Egyptomania. So tourists were coming in from all over the world to gawk at the pyramids and go to the Egyptian museum. It was an incredibly vibrant uh, cosmopolitan city. Mm. And it was understood by Egyptians to be a place that was, of course, connected to Asia. Of course, it was connected to India. You know, there were like Indians living in Cairo. There was a lot of trade and exchange back and forth between these places. They had, there were Urdu language newspapers that were published in Cairo. So it's only after 1945, with the division of the world uh, after the war into nation states, that these places become seen or understood as somehow culturally separate and as very, you know, kind of insulated, like one of them belongs to the Pacific region and one of them belongs to Africa, the Middle East, um, and the Eastern Mediterranean sphere. So it was really interesting to go back and look from the lens of the 1920s and 30s at how these places, how Egyptians and Indians understood their connections to one another as a lot more intimate than, you know, we currently think of them, let's say. It's so fascinating. Yeah, because I think the concept of borders and everything has become so much more defined recently from my yes. understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's, it's, it's totally the case that um, mm. not just borders, but also there's a crystallization that happened in the 40s and the 50s around national identity being linked to things like ethnicity, uh, being linked to language. And this was very much, you know, a process that gets underway. We can see it starting after World War One, with sort of the division or the breaking up of the Ottoman Empire, for example, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. At the, at the Paris Peace Conference after World War One, there was a lot of discussion and debate about, well, where to draw the lines on the map. And mm. what they came down to was, okay, well, language is going to determine this, or religion is going to determine it, or uh, ethnicity, you know, will, will yeah. determine it. And language tended to be the, the most dominant. By the time that World War II ends, empire is finished, right? We have the decolonization project, like the French and British empires are also being broken up in this way. And there comes sort of alongside that, this hardening or entrenchment of the borders and national divisions, that this is going to be the basis of identity and it's going to be the basis of sovereignty. So on the, on that note, I'd like you to define empire for us because I think oh, it gosh. can be... Yeah. <laughs> And, and also our understanding of imperialism and how it shifted because they're quite closely linked. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can think about empire. Obviously, it's, it's probably one of the most enduring systems of governance and territorial control that we have um, because we have examples of empires in the ancient period all the way up into the modern and uh, within living memory. Empires are essentially a form of organization that is centered in a metropole. Um, So we can think of London, Paris, Rome in the ancient context as well, Um, Istanbul uh, during the Ottoman uh, Empire. So there's a center of administration and out from that 
Administrative Center is a vast kind of territorial holding that may comprise different countries. They may not be geographically contiguous. They may be spread out across the globe as the British Empire was. Um, But there's this center of control. And the idea is that the other regions, the provinces of the empire, are exploited or to some extent their resources, whatever they have to give, whether that's manpower, whether that's raw materials, uh, natural resources, all of that is taken into the metropole and benefits the economy and benefits the the kind of uh, the central administration. So it's a form of extraction, let's say, as well as of uh, domination of territory. Mm. It's it's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot to unpack. Yes. The next question I wanted to ask you was about being a researcher. What hurdles do you face when you challenge the state narrative? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, Well, so I've spent a lot of my time in the UK. That's where I did my doctoral training. And um, while I was there, myself and several colleagues, we at some point put out a public letter which was pushing back against a project uh, that a senior colleague was advertising in the press. And uh, this was a colleague who was not a historian. They were proposing to do a project on the history of the British Empire. And the whole tone of the project was, let's say, woke narratives have gone too far and we need to get back to a quote-unquote balance sheet of empire where we taught up all of the good and the bad and do the math and decide whether or not empire was a good or a bad thing. And this researcher um, or this, this senior colleague was suggesting that there was sort of a decision that we could reach, let's say, as a community of scholars about whether or not empire was a good thing that people should be proud of or whether it was a bad thing that people should be ashamed of. And my colleagues and I pushed back against this project in the press uh, because we were saying, you know, as historians of empire, that's not what we do. We're not here to pass some sort of like moral judgment on whether empire is good or bad. We're here to study it in its intricacies. We're here Mm. to understand it in its totality. And this isn't something that we can uh, break up into units and uh, good or you bad. Know, let's say yeah. exactly and as- ascribe some sort of mathematical score to whether this was an event that we should be proud of or not proud of or you know i mean a massacre is worth three points you know on the negative mm. scale and then building a railway is worth five points on the positive scale or anything like that right this isn't history mm. i don't know what it is but it's certainly not our not our field I thought it was pretty uncontroversial what we were saying. We were trying to stay pretty close to the lines and certainly respect the academic freedom of our colleague to research whatever they wanted, et cetera. But we received an overwhelming amount of negative attention and press. My colleagues were personally attacked in the British in the British British tabloids. I received hate mail. I received sort of anonymous letters in my uh, in my college mailbox, et cetera. And the tone of much of what we received was both racist, uh, it was misogynist, it was 
you name it. <laughs> wow. Push back against archaic systems and you get a lot of... It was it was shocking because yeah. I thought what we were doing was kind of, from our perspective, it was so milk toast, right? It was so bland. Um, it was just a kind of like, hey, this isn't what we do as historians, just so you know. But the response was really overwhelming and it lasted. It went on for uh, years, actually. So what that tells me is that first of all, obviously we touched a nerve and people care, let's say in the United Kingdom, and we can talk about other places like Canada, where I'm from or Australia, where you're from, there's a certain generation, let's say, that is immensely emotionally attached to particular stories, particular Mm. narratives about the past and about the history of empire. And when you disrupt those narratives, even a tiny bit, when you you know intervene in the like the sacredness let's say of those of those myths about society and its origins in these countries like the the pushback against that comes from a very deep emotional place mm. and uh, i think that that says something about the importance of the work that we do because once people have a set idea about where they're from or who they are it's so difficult to change that. It's so difficult to disrupt that narrative later, right? Because it becomes so ingrained into who people think they are. And so that means that the project of history and you know the work that we do hopefully trickles down and transforms over time the way that people understand their societies. If we can give people a more nuanced, a more complex a more diverse understanding of different experiences and the societies mm. that they're from. If we can, through like the, the formats that I mentioned, through theater, through art, through public exhibitions, through press editorial, through podcasts and radio interviews like this one, mm. if that, if the tone of that slowly changes and we become more interested in let's say a rich past, a diverse past, a complex past that is neither something we need to fully embrace nor fully reject, but something that we can be in constant kind of dialogue and tension with, the more we can do that, it changes the way that they think about themselves and it changes their relationships with one another. Super great response. So interesting. (laughs) I'd like to talk about you a little bit more and and being obviously a practitioner of Buddhism. Mm. How has that affected your worldview through what you've been studying? That's a really great question. And I will say honestly that up until a very short time ago, I probably didn't have a fully formed response. Um, There was a book that I read two winters ago um, by Priya Satya, who's an incredible historian at Stanford University. And she wrote a book called Time's Monster. And the, I won't go into all the details of the book, but one of the things she does really well is demonstrate how, you know, let's say you come from a traditional Indian context and you're an astrologer and you understand the world according to this, you know, cyclical movement of the cosmos. And she talks about how in the West and particularly in terms of in the midst of the construction of empire, there was a no less powerful worldview that people had about how time worked. And they thought about time in a linear fashion Hmm. where everything they were doing in the present was towards some great 
end that would be manifest in the future. And because this goal, this future goal was so kind of amazing and wonderful, it justified all sorts of horrific behavior in the present, right? The ends, the future ends justified the present means. So she talks about this worldview and this linear march of time. And it was in reading her book that I finally started to realize why so many of the things that I said uh, that I wrote didn't land with a lot of my colleagues or it seemed counterintuitive to them. It was because I had been raised by uh, by parents who were practicing Nichiren Buddhism. And mm. I was raised within a community that had a Buddhist worldview. So my basic underlying principles about how time is organized is different than if if I'd been raised, let's say, in a Christian household where, where time is very much, you know, like a kind of linear march forward. Within Buddhism, time is more like an ocean. It's something that's happening simultaneously, and it's all influencing one another. So we think about time as like the present moment can influence the future, and mm. it also influences the past. We think about time as one drop in an ocean where each drop determines the composition of the entire ocean. Um, so that means that individual lives, individual decisions and actions have immense consequences, right? Um, there's something in history called the great man theory, which is very much looked down upon and kind of uh, rejected. It's this, uh, the, the sense that let's say a Winston Churchill or a Napoleon Bonaparte it's their individual actions and decisions that influence the course of events. And people push back on that and they say, no, it's systems. And they say it's, uh, it's, it's much more complicated than any one person's actions. Of course, that's true. Certainly that's true. But from a Buddhist perspective, we are all great and we mm. are all agents of our own destiny. And anyone can influence the course of history and anyone can change it. Yeah, it's very emboldening. Yeah, yeah, it's very empowering, for sure. It's a very empowering view and understanding. What it leads me to is I don't want to tell stories about just one person. And I don't want to tell stories that are based on sort of, let's say, impersonal factors such as the economy or, I don't know, an arms race or something. I mean, those are important contextual factors. But what really interests me is relationships between people, between mm. groups of people, between individuals, and how all of these different individual narratives create a tapestry. And it's that tapestry that fascinates me and that kind of like keeps me, I don't know, keeps me in the archives, keeps me researching. I love that. So can you tell us about the Vedic Buddhist concept of independent origination? Independent origination. I mean, we talk about that there's mutually dependent origination. Mm. So um, mutually dependent origination is the sense that everything in the world is connected to everything else. Yeah. And so the, the concept that I use the most to explain this is Indra's net. Indra's net is uh, covering the entire universe. And if you think of it as a fishing net, there are thousands of knots in it. In each knot, there's a jewel. And that jewel is an individual life. What's special about the jewels is that because they're so multi-surfaced and because of the way that they're 
organized as the intersection of the knots and the net, each single jewel reflects all of the others. So everything that I decide has consequences far beyond my imagination because it's reflected in all of the other lives around me. So, I mean, I, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I, I would talk about mutual, mutually dependent, yeah, origination and interconnectivity. Yeah. Beautiful. So you've also talked about the need for academic historians to become less reliant on the archive. What role does jewellery mm. have to play here and what can we discover about jewellery through fashion? Sorry, history through fashion. That's a really fascinating question. I can give you an example from my own work. I'll clarify. I very much spend a lot of time in the archives, and I don't think anyone should stop going into them. Archives are yeah. great. They're very useful repositories. But I don't think that they should stand alone anymore. Mm. Um, and I'll explain. What we find in archives is usually text. And that historically has been a medium of communication that's only available to a very small number of people. Only very few people, even 100 or 150 years ago, had access to the written word, could themselves read, write, produce these documents. So when you go into the archives, you're hearing from a real minority. So we can continue to use those very valuable sources, but I use the example actually of the ancient world, of the Roman world, where we have some fragments of text, we have some surviving histories, some surviving tablets, etc. But archaeologists have been driven to expand beyond that into material culture and understanding the past and uh, civilization through architecture, material culture, through pottery, and other fragments, right? And it's the, the kind of combination of that material culture with the text record that creates our understanding of the Roman world. So your question about what role does jewelry have to play in, let's say, the history of more contemporary societies, like the ones that I study, I love this question so much. In the period that I look at in the 1920s and 30s, there was a massive boom in enthusiasm and interest for Egyptian culture, Egyptian history, specifically pharaonic or ancient Egyptian, like Egyptology is what we would call it, right? And so this was a trend in, it called Egyptomania, and it heavily influenced the Art Deco movement in Europe, which mm. resulted in all kinds of fashion and jewelry that was inspired by the pharaohs and uh, things like the discovery of King Tut's tomb, myths about Cleopatra, etc. So this you know, starts in Egypt, but it's picked up through the Art Deco movement. It's popularized. It becomes a massive fad and craze in Europe and the Americas. And this ricochets back into the Egyptian environment with the rise of the nationalist movement. So these are the politicians and artists and intellectuals who are beginning to mobilize against empire and demand uh, self-rule for Egypt. And they take on the ancient symbols, including things like jewelry inspired by ancient Egypt, collars and necklaces and headdresses and armbands. Uh, and this starts to appear in their poster art, in their magazines and newspapers as a reclaiming of the ancient symbols of Egypt. As this is our culture. This is our civilization. And we were once great rulers. We were once the center of the ancient world. And we should be again. We deserve to rule ourselves again, right? So it's kind of like the reappropriation of those 
jewelry and fashion symbols becomes part of a moment in Egyptian national culture in the 20s and 30s. And I can even give you examples more like close to home during the Arab Spring when Tahrir Square in Cairo became the center of a massive popular movement uh, to overthrow the military regime and to reclaim uh, Egypt for, you know, very much the people. There was a massive rash in graffiti all over the center of town that featured these ancient Egyptian motifs and like busts of Nefertiti, King Tut's uh, death mask, etc., all showed up again, but now linked to slogans of the revolution. Incredible. It's so rich. <laughs> so the last question, unfortunately, I'd love to keep talking to you all day. Um, <laughs> tell us about what you were doing as part of a holistic service for other historians and how does mm-hmm. tarot reading and yoga factor into what you offer? Yeah, so I have always practice Buddhism, like since, you know, I, I, that was how I was raised. And I've, I've been practicing yoga since I was a teen. Um, in Beirut, I had a really close friend who was an incredible tarot card reader, and she taught me how to read cards. So these have always been a part of my life. And then, of course, I was finding myself professionally worked at the United Nations. I was in political analysis, and then I was a, a doctoral candidate at Oxford. I was in these environments where these things were completely separated out from my professional life. Mm. And um, it wasn't really until the pandemic when I found myself, you know, stuck at home, I started to get um, calls, a lot of outreach from people in my life who sort of knew I did these other things. Um, So they were colleagues, they were other researchers, or they were journalists, um, or, you know, they were working in research fields. But they were like, by the way, I know that you do this other stuff as well. Like, can you give me some yoga stuff to do at home? Or I really love a a tarot (laughs) card reading. Yeah, very much. Like, I know that you like dabble, right? And so out of that, I started to integrate the pieces of myself and to work with authors who were blocked with people who wanted to write a book or finish an article, but they were struggling to get past their, let's say, their mental blockages or their writer's block. And I started to say, well, how about we did some like meditation and breathing exercises to, you know, help you refocus? Or what if we did a tarot reading before I start talking to you about the text? And I found that this was actually... I I had a lot of really positive responses of people saying, I don't think any one of the things that you gave me by themselves would have been enough to help me finish this project or achieve this dream. But it was integrating all of those pieces and having that kind of holistic support that really allowed me to achieve what I wanted to achieve. So that was how the idea for Caravan, my business, came about. It was it was sort of starting to look at myself and look at all of the different skill sets that I had and to talk about them and package them in an integrated way and say like, listen, I can, I can help you in these different ways and you can tell me what, you know, like what of this is most interesting to you. Yeah. But yeah, it was, I think stopping this, I think we all do this. There's certain pieces of ourselves that we're like, oh, that piece isn't relevant in this context mm. or in this situation. Like I don't bring that version of me into this room. And I think what I've been working on for the past couple of years is like, no, I'm going to show up as the, as the whole me, 
(laughs) right? And I'm going to bring my Buddhism to bear on my writing. And I'm going to bring my training in yoga to bear on my work with authors uh, and researchers. And I'm going to try and show up as the whole me. I feel like you're very courageous and doing a lot of good things for the world. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, likewise, I'm really a huge fan of all of your work. Thanks so much. So would you mind giving us your social media handle for anyone listening as well so that they can find you and discover more of your incredible work? Absolutely. I'm mainly on Instagram. Um, My personal account is Erin. E-R-I-N, Caravan with a K, K K-A-R-A-V-A-N. And my business is Caravan Creative. That's caravancreative.com. Yeah, that's me. This podcast was produced by Zoltan Fetcho and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. Love is very complicated and it taps into so many of our fears and desires and past experiences that um, it, it kind of is always going to be changed and impacted by them. Until next time, stay curious. Stay curious.